If you would like a free newsletter on this or other subjects, just give us a call at Christian Answers. The phone number is area code 512-218-8022. That's 512-218-8022. Or you could email us at cdebater at aol.com. That's cdebater at aol.com. Thank you. Hello, this is Larry Wessels, Director of Christian Answers of Austin, Texas, Christian Debater Ministries. I'm pleased to introduce to my audience a dear brother in the Lord, Richard Bennett, Director of Berean Beacon Ministries, an outreach to Roman Catholics. It is great to be here, Larry. For people that don't know you, you were a Roman Catholic priest for 22 years, is that right? Please give us a short account of your life. Yes, I was a Catholic priest for 22 years. I was a Catholic altogether for 48 years, having grown up in Dublin, Ireland. I was trained uh, very early on in my education, in what we call secondary and elementary education, uh, by the Jesuits. And then I decided to become a Catholic priest, and I spent eight years uh, in preparation it was a novitiate year and then six years to ordination when I was ordained a priest in Dublin, Ireland in 1963 and then one year in Rome, eight years in all. Then I spent uh, 21 years in uh, Trinidad West Indies as a parish priest carrying out the, the work of a priest. I had the best academic training you could get finishing up in the city of Rome itself near the Vatican and I I really had a desire to bring P Catholics to uh, what we thought was a way of being right with God so that they could get to purgatory and then that they finally could get to heaven. And I was great for doing penances and sacrifices. And then I was very devout in Trinidad, uh, baptizing babies, hearing people's confessions and doing all the sacraments. It was in 1972, I had a very serious accident where I was three days unconscious after the serious accident. And then after that time, when I got out of the hospital and the sanatorium, I began searching in the Bible for what is truth. It took me 14 years of comparing the Bible to Catholicism before I realized that I was dead in trespasses and sins and it was by grace alone that we are saved. I One night I got on the floor in my house and I cried out to God for faith and his grace to save a wretch like me dead in trespass and sins and he gloriously did that. It was about two months afterwards I very reluctantly left the Catholic Church because my prayer after I was right with God by biblical salvation was that I could really love Catholics and give them the real true gospel of grace. That is grace alone, faith alone and in Christ alone. But then in prayer over those two months after I was saved, the Lord showed me that I could best serve him and love Catholics if I left actually the priesthood and the Catholic Church and reached out to Catholics nonetheless. And um, I, I did that. I left uh, the priesthood in 1985 and uh, reached the States in 1986. And uh, I, um, I just 
prayed and prayed that I would have a love for Catholics to reach out. I thank the Lord that after one year as a missionary in China, I was able to start the ministry that I now have called BereanBeacon.org. It is to show Catholics the real truth of where salvation is in a person, not in any church. And it is by God's grace, not by any ritual that any church does. So this has been really wonderful. I've seen priests save. I saw two priests in Poland, you know, through our ministry. We have a Polish webpage, besides many other languages, and of course in English. And I thank God that I have seen God's grace poured out. And that is my heart's desire, Larry, that Catholics would know the truth and that evangelicals in this very false ecumenical age would see the differences. Uh, I have a very interesting article on the webpage. Uh, are Catholics Christians? And we've had tremendous response to that, evangelicals whose eyes have been opened in reading that article. So it's with love for Catholics and to show the truth of Christ Jesus that God will be glorified and many, many souls saved, particularly Catholics, to the glory of his name. Outstanding. That was a wonderful testimony, Richard. Uh, could you just real briefly tell us about, uh, you've written some books and you've already mentioned your ministry, but what are these books you've written and how can people find them? Yes, I have written or edited, uh, written some and edited others, and uh, they have been amazing. I just thank God. Uh, our most well-known book is Far From Rome, Near to God, The Testimonies of 50 Converted Catholic Priests. Since 1994, that book has sold steadily across the world in English and in other languages, and uh, it's on the third edition now. And... Uh, the other book that has my heart really displayed and my love for Catholics is the book I've written about Catholicism called Catholicism, East of Eden, Insights into Catholicism for the 21st Century. This book is uh, published by Banner of True Trusts, like the uh, book of the 50 testimonies of former priests. And... Um, I thank God for that because the Lord has used that book and it brought many Catholics to himself by that book. Uh, the other book that my heart was in in editing together with Mary Hertel is a book called The Truth Set Us Free, 20 Former Nuns Tell Their Stories. And that book has been used mightily of the Lord as well. And I thank God for the, those women, most of whom are still alive and active in reaching out to Catholics themselves. And it is just a wonderful testimony of God's grace. And the, the other book I've written is called On the Wings of Grace Alone. I've edited that. And that is just 30 ordinary Catholics and uh, what we call lay Catholics and how the Lord brought them to salvation. That is a, an amazing book too. How can you obtain these books? Well, go to our webpage, bereanbeacon.org. And just go to the folder on the left-hand side, Books. And when you click on that, it gives all the details of how you can get those books. Outstanding. Well, Richard, uh, we're going to go into uh, showing people your videos now here across uh, particularly our audience on YouTube. But uh, many people don't know that you and me go to the same church here in Austin, Texas. So it gives me a special opportunity to be around you a lot just so we can do ministry work but anyway I want to thank you for allowing us to post your videos uh, on the internet through YouTube and other internet servers 
You praise God and may souls be saved and the Lord glorified. Amen and amen. Amen. Welcome to the program. Uh, today I'm very happy to be interviewing Tim Brown and we're here in Atlanta and I am, uh, it's a real privilege to talk to you Bill and I, or Tim and I want to welcome you to the program. Well, thank you Richard, it's great to be here. Yeah and Tim I want to know something about where you grew up and what was the background of your mother and father, you know what sure. beliefs did they have? Sure. Know? Uh, my mom and dad met in, in Illinois at the University of Illinois. They uh, were in college together. My mother went to a uh, private Catholic college for two years and then met my dad at a, at a fraternity gathering and um, they decided to start dating and so she transferred to the uh, University of Illinois. and. Uh, after graduation they got married and my mom grew up in the Catholic Church and my dad grew up in the Methodist Church so he he decided uh, or, or he followed the mandates that were set forth for him in the Catholic Church to convert to Catholicism and um, shortly thereafter uh, my they, they were still living in Illinois upon uh, graduation graduation from college my dad got a job with Monsanto and um, during that time they were still living in Illinois my older sister was born there we're uh, five siblings in our family and the first four 18 months apart and uh, I'm the only boy out of four sisters and my oldest sister was born in Kankakee Illinois and and then I was born there as well in the subsequent years we um, moved um, I, I forget how many times, but numerous, numerous times we Monsanto transferred my dad. The only places I really recall living were uh, uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. We actually lived there twice. Uh, we lived there and moved away on a job transfer and, and got transferred back there. And I, I started the uh, first grade at a private Catholic school in in St. Louis. I can't remember which one it was yeah. and uh, we'd been back there this was our second move there and had been back there just barely over a year and they transferred my dad to Atlanta and that was in 1960 and I was seven years old at the time and we'd been here about a year and at that point in time they were going to transfer my parents back to St. Louis and my dad said no we're not moving again so we we ended up settling down here and um, that's kind of where I grew up here uh, I'm not a native of Atlanta but have lived here since 1960 so that's a long enough time to be called a native. <laughs> yes yes it, that is and uh, it's a lovely city here in Atlanta and uh, I have precious memories I spent two years here after I was um, you know, saved out of the Catholic Church and priesthood and came finally to the States and the, the first city I came to was Atlanta so mm -hmm. I, I, I remember it well. Mm -hmm. I was going around 285 last night and bringing back memories yeah. to me <laughs> of, of the city. So when you were here you said you were 
seven years old and coming mm-hmm. on, on more. And this is around the time when a young Catholic boy uh, has their first communion. Do you mm-hmm. remember what it was like going to communion, you know, at Mass on, on Sunday? Yeah, um, I, I do somewhat. We, um, of course, were very, very active in the church. I, I think my mom was probably a lot more active than my dad as I think back at it. I, I, I you know, maybe there was some reluctancy on his part. I'm not really sure. But we did go to church as a family and um, went to a, a, a Catholic school as well. The first year we moved here, I went to public school. I think they were trying to feel their way out and feel their way around, you know, which parish to belong to. And we settled in one in the, in the uh, northern suburbs at that time. It was Sandy Springs, which, of course, today is a city of its own. But in the 1960s, that was like the furthest out suburb that you could be in without being way out in the country. And my dad worked in the city, so that's where we uh, ended up at a, a church called St. Jude's. And um, it would be in, from people from Atlanta would recognize that as the North Springs area. And... Um, after uh, we settled in there, then I, I went to school there from third grade to seventh grade, and actually third grade through sixth grade, and I did go to a private uh, Catholic high school, middle school, high school thing uh, for the seventh grade, and really don't know why I didn't go back uh, after that. went to public school in the eighth grade, but I was very fortunate in my mind looking back now that I didn't go there in high school because it, they were very very strict. I remember really getting the tar beaten out of me by <laughs> by the priest, you know, and they were teaching the classes. Even had one, I'll never forget this guy, had a Georgia history professor, teacher there, and um, this guy was such a southerner that if you put your name on the paper and, and just put your name, Tim Brown, and, and you wrote the quote, the South shall rise again, you would at least pass. You didn't have to answer <laughs> any question. But anyway, back to your question. Um, uh, so we were very active in the church, and I did what every good little Catholic boy does, and you know, to follow the steps of, of the church that are set forth. And and remember the communion time of uh, you know we came home from church the day you know the day of that event, and I remember my mom saying, you know, don't you feel special? And you know, and I suppose. I did, you know, um, I, I suppose, you know, I was getting the praise of everybody, how proud they were of me, you know, for yeah. for going forth with this. But, but you know, I, I, I didn't really sense, you know, by the next morning there wasn't any, you know, magic or change or anything that had come over my life. Uh, yeah, but uh, did it... Uh did it help you in any way, like the official teaching of the Catholic Church, when the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is the official teaching, it says this uh, in paragraph 1393, Holy Communion separates us from sin. For this reason, the Eucharist cannot unite us to Christ without at the same time cleansing us from past sins and preserving us from future sins. Did you find that there was that effect in going to communion was it going to preserve your life as a young boy from sins? I would say uh, (laughs) ask my sisters (laughs) (laughs) but uh, you know really uh, honestly though I would say absolutely not Uh, nothing changed it it was just a rote routine that you you went through and you know I sensed no uh, 
no remorse over sin, no guilt over sin, no brokenness over sin, no, uh, you know, n nothing changed in my life just because I was taking communion. Um, you know, it, it was, like I said, it was just a something that, that you just, this is what you do. Mm -hmm. You know, there was no change. Well, Tim, I want to find out what was it like when you were about 14 or so in the eighth grade? Uh, what was life like sure. at that time for you? Well, at that time, I, like I said, had come out of the seventh grade at the private school and was now in the public school spectrum. And, and my dad was a heavy drinker of alcohol. And our refrigerator always had beer in it. And, uh, and a, a guy that's actually still one of my best friends today that lived across the street from me and, and another boy that lived up the street from us, but we were all over at my house one, I don't remember if it was, a, I guess it was either in the summertime or a weekend, and uh, my parents had gone out to dinner. And... Um, we um, decided that we were going to go and get some of the beers out of the refrigerator and just see what this was all about that consumed so much of my my dad's life. And we opened the three beers, and both of my buddies said, ooh, this is nasty. And I said, I like this. And um, I, I think, Richard, from that moment on, my life was on a <laughs> downward spiral for alcohol. And yeah. I drank mine and I drank theirs. And needless to say, for a 14-year-old that has never consumed any alcohol to drink three beers, uh, I was intoxicated. And that pretty much started that downward spiral for the next, um, well, really, uh, probably 20-plus years of my life. And uh, it, it all started right then and there, though. And, and then, uh, you know, I went back to school the next week or, or the next fall, when it, whatever it was. And, and I started meeting people and, you know, and started talking about that experience and, and come to meet lots of people, you know, like-minded people tend to gravitate together. And I, I met lots of people that were doing the same thing. And then, uh, well, one guy said, well, you know, there's this, uh, this was in, you know, like 19, uh, in the middle 60s, and, uh, uh, the, you know, marijuana and the Vietnam War and music was having a big impact in the culture at that time. And, and uh, somebody said, you know, well, have you tried any of this marijuana stuff? And I said, well, no, I hadn't, you know, and we... We went back to this place where we would go and smoke our cigarettes back behind the house, and a guy rolled some up, and, and we smoked it, and nothing happened. And my dad took me to get a haircut. This was I remember this was on a Saturday, and I had a haircut appointment with my dad at the barber. And I'm sitting there, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm anticipating this, some, whatever was going to happen to happen, and it never happened. So, the, you know, later that day, I went, got back home, and I told my buddy, I said, well, nothing happened. And he said, well, it takes two or three times. You've got to get a little bit of it in your system for it to kick in. But then once it's there, it'll really take off. And so I said, I had the brilliant idea. Well, let's smoke a little more, <laughs> you know. And um, so we did. And, you know, before long, you know, that became a, a regular part of my life as, as well as the alcohol did. And, uh, you know, I managed to stay in school um, through that time and uh, would typically would, you know, smoke some marijuana in the morning before school. I wouldn't drink before school. Uh, I couldn't 
maintain my... I wasn't one that could drink just one sip. I had to go for the whole, <laughs> how would you say, all the gusto, you know. And so I, I couldn't handle school inebriated, although I could handle school um, intoxicated on marijuana. Yeah, you know, yeah. High on marijuana, however you want to say that. Well, that, that is really interesting. And it contrasts with my own life in Ireland because at that age I was such a holy little Catholic boy yeah, yeah, living such a devout life and of course not into any of this horrendous stuff but being pure and holy. Anyway, I, at that time in your early teens is when you begin to look at the girls, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and then, uh, how was it then? Did you have any early dates in your life? I, I did. There was actually, um, there was a girl that lived a couple streets over and, you know, her house was kind of known as a party house and, you know, we would go over there and drink and do the uh, making out and all that kind of stuff, you know, and I never really got real serious in a relationship with that girl, but uh, I left one part out about the early drinking stages as well, is that um, it just came to my mind. I. I uh, had become an altar boy, and uh, yeah, I think that greatly pleased my mother. Well, I had been dabbling with the alcohol, like I said, and come to find out, well, back underneath the counter in that back room where you put your altar boy clothes on, well, there was an abundant supply of wine back there. <laughs> and myself and several of the other young boys, you know, discovered it, and so we would... Uh, Partake of the wine. We, we would help ourselves. Yeah, yeah. But... Um, um, I, I had a steady girlfriend through high school, and uh, she she went to a uh, Baptist church, and uh, her parents were all the time talking to me about you know the the Baptist church, and you know and and I had my honest belief, Richard was, and you could even ask my wife today, not the same girl, but um, that I I had an honest belief that I was Catholic, so I was okay. God and I were okay. It, it, I, I really believed in purgatory, you know, and I had it figured out in my mind that the scales weren't too far off. You know, I hadn't <laughs> yeah. killed anybody, you yeah. know, and I hadn't raped anybody. Yeah. I hadn't done any horrific thing. I wasn't doing anything that I wasn't seeing other Catholic men do. So, you know, I had it figured out I'd be in purgatory. So, you know, I was hanging on to that. And... Um, this girl, we would even, uh, uh, at Christmas time, we would even use the excuse of, well, we're going to midnight mass. Yeah. And you know that girls' parents will let them stay out past midnight on Christmas Eve. We never went to a midnight mass. <laughs> we were out getting drunk and smoking marijuana, you know, and then I'd take her home at 1.30 in the morning. At the one time a year, you could stay out past midnight with your date. But as that life continued to spiral completely out of control, by the age of 16 and a half, somewhere in there, 10th grade, uh, I decided that uh, getting drunk and using drugs was more important to me than school. So I just quit going to school. Well, needless to say, at that time, my parents were a little upset with the whole situation, and uh, I, I just said, well, the best way to accommodate this is to move out of the house. So a friend of mine and I got an apartment together, and um, that was just a horrific uh, time, you know, looking back on it, of, of what went on in that apartment. Their girls would come over, and we would have, you know, the wrong kind of relationships with them, just little, you know, everybody just came to our place 
because there were there was drugs and alcohol there. Well, that girl that I had dated all through high school, she she had had enough at that point. You know, this is just too out of control for me. I've got better plans than to spend my life with a high school dropout. So she went her way and I went my way. Well, of course, I was all crushed and broken like any teenage boy is when he gets dumped. And um, the guy that I was living with, I'd gotten him a date with that girl's best friend. And they were pretty serious as well. And and so when they saw how dumpy I was, they said, well, she's got a friend. We can get you a date with her. Yeah. So they did. And uh, that was Kit, who is my wife today. And on our first date, I went and picked her up, and all of my buddies were going to this party that night. And uh, she had, Kit had just graduated high school. And uh, actually, we still laugh today. Our first date, that was April 1st. And so she was saying if it didn't work, well, it was April Fool's Day. <laughs> and I can look back now and say she went out with a fool, but, uh, but God worked it out. But that night, we were all um, using some pretty uh, heavy drugs, some hallucinogenics, and we were uh, using needles to uh, put the drugs, you know, syringe. We were shooting it up. And Kit said, if you're going to do that, I'm not having anything to do with you. So at that point, I said, well, fine. She said, you can snort it, you can pop it, you can do whatever you want, but you can't use a syringe. So I, uh, I said, okay, I kind of liked her, you know, she was cute. And, um, and um, so I stopped using the needles that night. She, she went out with me and, and we dated very, very uh, regularly. I mean, we became boyfriend and girlfriend. And uh, she was 16, I was 17. And uh, isn't there a musical about that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, uh, we were dating and uh, like I said, she had finished high school. She was working. I had a job. It wasn't a good job. Um, it was working at a car wash. I think there's a song about that as well. But <laughs> anyhow, um, you know, it was a very low-wage job. And but you know, I was, I had a car, and I was well. Actually, I had a jalopy, and uh, it wasn't a car fit to take a date in. But. Um, so Kit and I were, we were dating, she was working and I was working and just, you know, going out on dates. I just had an old jalopy of a car and, and we just managed to, you know, just to have fun, we thought. And uh, one thing led to another and we, we became sexually active and the next thing we knew uh, was that she had conceived a child. And at least we thought she had conceived a child. We weren't sure she was getting sick every morning and and uh so you know this was back before the days of uh of home pregnancy tests and so we called the doctor and said uh you know we think that that i, I guess she called the doctor and said i think i may be pregnant and they said well bring in a urine sample and so she started uh we didn't realize it at the time of what they meant by that so she started that night uh, collecting urine and um, she had to work the next day and for some reason I was off and she asked me if I could come by and, um, and, and take this to the doctor and we could figure out if, if this was what was going on. So I went by her house and she gave me a brown paper bag with a quart jar in it. And uh, I walk into the doctor's office and, you know, being a gynecologist's office and a young boy walks in, they're kind of like, well, what, can we help you? And I said, well, 
my girlfriend asked me to bring this by. We're supposed to be getting a pregnancy test. And, and the nurse took it, and she could tell it was kind of heavy, you know. And, and then she opens it, and she pulls out this, you know, mason jar full of urine. And all of the ladies in the office start <laughs> laughing, you know. And I, I'm embarrassed anyway. And, and I said, well, what's going on? And they told me to bring this urine sample here. And she said, oh, yes, sir, you, you need a urine sample, but you don't need a quart jar of urine. So um, anyway, it ended up that, that she was pregnant. And she and I both had enough sense to know that, you know, the, the right thing to do was to have the child. And, and there were some, it, it didn't come from my mom and dad, of course, uh, with, the, with the Catholic background and, and, and from her mom. But there were some family members that, that said, you know, that you need to, um, you need to, to have an abortion. I mean, Kit, you're, you know, they had her scheduled. She was supposed to go to Bob Jones University, and, and uh, uh, you know, I was supposed to do whatever. I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do, but, but we knew, no, we, we need to get married, and we need to have this baby. So um, we, we set the wedding up, and if that was going to be the case, of course, we were going to be married in the Catholic Church. Kit said, I, I'll, I'll raise the children Catholic. She, she never said, I'll convert to Catholicism. She said, I'll raise the children Catholic. And, and, you know, again, it's not like I was this good little Catholic boy and I'd been going to church this whole time. I hadn't. And um, I, I had thought about, uh, you know, this Catholic concept that I'd been taught about purgatory, that, you know, I'm okay. You know, I, the, the scales are there. And, and I honestly, Richard, I had this cliche about me that, that, you know, I, I'm Catholic, I'm okay, you don't have to worry about me. And that's going to get me at least into purgatory, and that was all right with me. You know, I, I thought, well, my mom's a good Catholic. If I die young, she'll pray me out of that place, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, had, I was convinced of that. So we, we set the wedding up, and, and we couldn't get married in the big church, so we got married in the, in the convent uh, chapel, and... Um, the priest was late to the wedding. He um, he uh, was at a football game, or actually watching a football game at home, and I guess got so involved with the game that he forgot about us, but he eventually showed up. We had the wedding, uh, got so drunk the night of the wedding that I was spent most of the night with my head in the toilet bowl throwing up. <laughs> And the next, that was the first night, we just went to a local hotel. The next day, her mom, because we didn't even have a car other than the old jalopy that wouldn't drive from Sandy Springs to Stone Mountain, the next day her mom totes us over to Stone Mountain for our honeymoon and uh, dropped us off. And through this whole time, we, we knew, you know, okay, we cannot afford this baby without insurance. And uh, I don't really know what it cost to have a baby back then versus now. I'm sure it's less, but not, um, you know, probably not in comparison to what the dollar is worth. So, so we started looking around, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? This is real, you know. And um, so I decided to join the Army. They had great uh, medical benefits. seemed like the right thing to do. And... Uh, the only hang-up glitch to it was, well, this was right in the middle of the, well, not in the middle, this was at the end of the Vietnam era. And uh, in God's providence, he uh, saw fit to have it to where when I joined, they had just stopped sending troops over to Vietnam. Um, and 
that that was providential because the drugs that were flowing there from what I understand were just really really out of control and 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 I did not know it at the time and and I don't know what the military is like today you know I, I thank the Lord often for our soldiers of today and they're fighting for our freedom in our country but when I was in there there was I think you would be very, very hard-pressed to find somebody that wasn't uh, daily using some form of substance for intoxication. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, but I went and joined and got a whopping 288 bucks a month. And um, when we had the baby, that went up to $345 a month. I thought, woo-hoo, you know, more beer money. But we managed to uh, move, uh, uh, was stationed, uh, did my basic training in South Carolina and then Augusta, Georgia for the advanced training. And in between the advanced training and the permanent duty station, our child was born here in Atlanta at a local hospital. And then we moved. Uh, we, at this point in time, had managed to buy a car. We bought a Volkswagen Beetle, a brand new one, 1973 Volkswagen Beetle. And uh, we loaded up our stuff, which was a, uh, a coffee table a friend made in high school, a tele black and white TV, a bed, and a crib. And off we went to South Florida, to Homestead Air Force Base, south of Miami. And uh, I drove a little U-Haul truck, and Kit drove the Volkswagen. And we went way, way far away from home. And, and I can see there were some, there really were some advantages to that. This was pre-cell phone, pre-internet, pre-computer for that matter days and you know to pick up a telephone and dial zero was an expensive thing and we just couldn't afford that so we couldn't run home to mommy and daddy when we had problems and we grew up together a lot through that experience. Um, I think I can honestly say Kit grew up and I didn't. I was still that same young party animal. Well, 1975 rolls around. That was 72 to 75. 1975 rolls around, and the economy was in as much a state as it is today. Jobs were extremely hard to find, and I looked and looked and looked, and, and I could not find a job. <clears throat> I think I was 21, 22 years old at this time, and uh, the Army waved a $4,000 reenlistment bonus in front of my face, and that seemed like an absolutely tremendous amount of money to me at that age and at that time. Probably would be like waving realistically $40,000 in front of a 21, 22-year-old today. And uh, I jumped on it, you know, and then the, the benefit of it was I got to pick where I wanted to go. And I'd talked to enough guys in the Army that had been there for a while and, and knew where to pick based on my lifestyle, which happened to be West Germany. So we re-enlist for four years, and they told us that the first uh, three years would be in West Germany. And, you know, as far as I was concerned, I'd hit the jackpot because German beer, as much as your home country of Ireland, I'm sure is very, very potent. And one German beer that I'd been told was the equivalent of six Budweiser's. And I mean, I thought, you know, I mean, not only will I save money, but I can get drunk easier. And the drugs are much freer flowing and, and more powerful, if you will, more potent, however you want to say that, in Western Europe than they are in the United States, at least then they were. So off we go. And I went three months in advance. Um, you have to get settled in and all before they let your family come over. 
And don't you know that the, the way the enemy, Satan, had uh, things set up for me was I walk into the barracks the very, very first day, and there's a guy there that I didn't know, but he said, hey, are you Tim Brown? I said, yeah, I am. He said, well, I saw your orders on the captain's table, and, and a, my best friend, and he named the guy's name, who you were stationed with in Homestead, Florida, he just left two weeks ago or whatever it was, and he told me you were coming. He told me to hook you up. <laughs> so, you know, there I am, day one, getting what I wanted, you know. And three months later, my wife and daughter come, and, um, and you know, it was just the same thing. I just smoked, you know, there they don't have marijuana. They have uh, hash, but it's the same concept there, same intoxicant THC in that drug that gets you intoxicated. So... I smoked hash all day long every day and drank German beer all afternoon and night every night. And I just stayed drunk for three years. And during that time, um, I kind of started noticing that, you know, Kit was becoming more mature. She was growing as a woman. And I was just this same intoxicated little kid. As we continued to live in Germany, we, um, we uh, got pregnant again. This time it was a boy, and, and Kit uh, delivered the baby at the military hospital there in Germany. And so now we were a family, a mom and a dad, a boy and a girl, the perfect little family. And uh, again, though, my, nothing phased me as far as, as using uh, substances to stay intoxicated. And, of course, all my friends were just like that as well. So you can imagine the lifestyle that my kids were being brought up in. And we, we returned to the States in 1979 and had a, uh, had a year left to do and were uh, stationed down at Fort Stewart in Savannah, Georgia, which I, I look at that now as uh, God working that out because we had determined we were going to get out of the military and move back to the Atlanta area. And that was a close enough place to where I could look for a job and an apartment. And I actually moved them back up here uh, to Atlanta, probably when I had about a month or six weeks left in the Army, and you know, and then we moved back to the Atlanta area in an apartment over off Cobb Parkway, and we both, you know, she didn't work at that point in time. I worked and, uh, you know, managed to, but, but still nothing changed, you know, from transitioning from military life to civilian life. I still just, you know, when you're looking for the wrong way to live, it's not hard to find it. It's knocking on your door. Yeah, well, how did uh, Kit take all of this, your lifestyle, your drinking, your new drugs? How, how did she respond to what you were doing? Well, look at me. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, she, um, she tolerated it, I think, would probably be the best way to say it. Uh, she would, um, would drink with me occasionally, and, and she would use some of the, the marijuana-type things occasionally. But she was, I, I can honestly say that she was not an out-of-control person. And she didn't have to have it every day. She's the type of person that could go into a restaurant and, and have a, um, a beer and leave half of it sitting there. And, uh, you know, I would pick her half up and finish it for her. But um, she finally, uh, you know, like I said, she was growing into a, a, in, in her, just in her womanhood. And, and I've noticed something years later, as I know now, that people that get caught up in an addictive lifestyle seem to stay at that maturity level of where they were at when they started using substances. So she, she found herself married to a boy that was out of control. My life had gotten to the point where 
I would literally drive across town for one joint of marijuana. And, you know, I could tell that it was grating on her. You know, I, I, I never missed work because of my addiction. I, I always managed to get by. And, uh, you know, our, it's not like we were living in a shack or anybody was doing without. We, we always managed to get by, but I always had what I wanted. And that was to get drunk at night and smoke marijuana all day long. So the best way to make that happen would be then to become selling marijuana. You know, if you're selling it, then you get yours for free. So that lifestyle continued, I, I think probably pretty much, let's say from when we came back from the military, 79, 80, right through that time frame, up until somewhere in the middle of, let's say 1986, I woke up one Saturday morning and she said, I'm sick and tired of this lifestyle, this is over. And I was shocked. I said, you got to be kidding me. You know, why? I'll quit. I, I promise I'll quit this time. You know, well, she'd heard that, you know, what, you probably couldn't even count how many times, 5,000 or more, you know, in the years prior to that. So she was dead serious. She, she had put her foot down, and she said, you got to go. And uh, I didn't know what to do. And so I, I called my mom, and, and uh, my dad had passed away previous to that, and so my mom was living alone. And I said, well, she's throwing me out. And my mom, I thought she'd take my side, you know. <laughs> She's like, "Well, do you blame her? You know, you hear you're, you're, you know, you're a fool. You're a, you know, you're an alcoholic, a drug addict. Do you blame her? You know, she's sick of you. Look at the way you treat her and everything." So, um, so, but my mother said, "Of course, you can come stay here." She had plenty of room, big house, and and that night I got down. I didn't know anything, you know. I didn't know anything about being saved or this, that, or the other, but. That night, I got down on my knees beside the bed and, you know, I guess reverted back to some of my early upbringing as a Catholic, you know, and I got on my knees and I folded my hands and I said, God, please save my family. And I got up. And, and I can honestly say that I, I had, from that moment on, I never had a desire to drink another drop of alcohol. I did... Um, smoked some marijuana three times over the next year. It seemed like about every 90 days I'd, I'd, I'd want to get some. And I wouldn't buy a lot. You know, I'd buy enough just to roll a couple of joints with. I'd smoke one, and I would be so guilt-ridden that I'd get rid of the rest. And, uh, you know, it just wasn't, you know, what I thought I was looking for again. And um, I, you know, I went to the AA meetings. That's what you did, you know. I mean, that's what you, you know, and boy, you talk about... Oh, that's another whole video, I suppose. But um, I managed to not use again. And and we, uh, I, it's not like we weren't officially separated. We weren't legally separated. There were no attorneys involved. We, uh, we just, I just didn't sleep at the house. I coached my son's little league team at the ballpark. And, and, and I think the advantage of the coaching and all the other things of that nature. When the car broke down, she would call me. We never switched bank accounts, everything. We just didn't stay in the same home. And I think the advantage of the closeness of that situation there was she was beginning to see genuine change in me. But the genuine change that she was observing had nothing to do with God. It was just that I wanted my family back. I was a miserable, abusive, verbally abusive person 
you know, that would cuss you out just as soon as look at you. And, and, but, you know, for her, that was better than the other guy who was like that but was intoxicated all the time. So she saw, I think it was around six months, she saw enough change that uh, she invited me to move back into the home. And so, of course, I did. You know, and, and but then I was just, I guess, what the world would call today a dry drunk. You know? <laughs> well, you I was a miserable creature, let's put it that way. Well, and I couldn't drown my misery in my alcohol and drugs. <laughs> well, Tim, you've explained how through discipline and determination, you know, things have changed. But how did you come to faith, you know, well, faith in the Lord, like biblical faith yeah. and, and a true change of life, like your heart and your whole, your whole person and your whole, everything has changed because now, you know, you have a relationship with the Lord. How did that happen? Well, I, you know, I can look back now and I can clearly trace that, you know, and, and I believe that, uh, that God was drawing me, you know, the, uh, the efficacious grace of our Savior. He was effectually calling me, and this was just all part of his process. Well, when I wasn't buying drugs and alcohol anymore, we managed to scrape a few pennies together. So, you know, it kind of came. We were renting a house this whole time, and it kind of dawned on both of us, hey, we got some money. Maybe we ought to buy a house. So we started looking. And the house you spent the night in last night is the house. And it was 1988. We purchased that house, and uh, we moved in. And um, a couple of years after we moved in, well, it was a few, it was in 91, our daughter started kind of going down, the, not, not the same path I had, but she was getting in trouble. And uh, we thought, you know, we need counseling. You know, we, I don't know, I hear all this stuff about counseling all the time. We need some, some family counseling. So this lady where I was working in the exterminating business suggested, you know, she was always really probing about my family situations, you know, and, and, and I know why now. She was praying for me all the time, but you know, I didn't know it then. And, and she said, why don't you call that Baptist church up there where you live and see if they've got counseling? So I said, sure. And this woman, I'll never forget this lady. Her name was Mabel Ham, and she was the receptionist. And she answers the phone, First Baptist Church, may I help you? And I said, yes, I was wondering if you had uh, family counseling. We need some family counseling. And she said, yes, sir, we do. Uh, we, we actually are referring to an outside agency. And, and uh, are you a member of our church? And I said, well, no, I'm not. I was offended by that. I mean, after all, I'm Catholic, you know. And, and I, I, was, I was really offended by that. And I said, well, why do you ask I'm not? And she said, well, if you were, the first three visits were free. Other than that, it's $70 a visit. And, well, that was the exact same price I was getting from, you know, the other three or four places that I had called. And I thought, and I said, okay, well, thanks. And she said, well, wait a minute, sir. She said, would you visit our church? I'll tell you what. I'll give you those three sessions for free if you'll visit the church three times. And I said, okay. Now, you talk about the providence of God. So that Friday, I get off of work, and I stop by the church. And uh, I said, I'm going to get the, the lay of the land here, and so everybody's going to know where they're going to go on Sunday morning, and by golly, we're doing this. I walk in the door, and there's a guy there moving chairs around. And he's like, this is 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. He said, could I help you? I said, yeah, I'm coming to visit here Sunday. And he said, was well, it your first time? I said, yeah. 
And he said, well, where'd you go to church before? Oh, I'm Catholic. I'm just coming here to get the free counseling. And he said, really? I was brought up in the Catholic church as well. Well, there was a bond. And he said, tell you what, man, come to my Sunday school class. So I go home, you talk about dropping a bomb. I said, well, guess what, family? We're going to Sunday school and to church, you know. We didn't know you take Bibles into a Baptist church, and we walk in with nothing. You know, we felt really weird. We decided that we were going to give it three strikes, and we're done. You know, my wife grew up Methodist, so I grew up Baptist, uh, Catholic. We go, and we kind of liked the Sunday school. There were other people our age. The kids were in their groups, and they both, we all knew people, you know, because we were in the community for years before this, coaching ball at the park and everything. And so we get in there, and... Uh, Strike one, preacher doesn't have a robe on. Well, you know, in a Methodist church and a Catholic priest, you better have that robe on. Strike two, no Lord's Prayer, you know? And so we were, we were there, and then it happened. And, and I know for a fact, Richard, I know for a fact that I heard the gospel prior to this because I went to Young Life meetings in high school, you know, and those were evangelistic. They were trying to, I went because girls were there. But, you know, I know I heard the gospel, but it, you know, it just bounced off of me like I was in a case or something. And this guy gets up and he starts preaching. Now, th tell me if this isn't the providence of God. John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, basically, what must, we do, must I do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, you've got to be born again. And I poked my wife. I said, there's that born-again thing those Baptists are always talking about. But I mean to tell you, the scales fell off of my eyes, the plugs came out of my ears, and it flat made sense. So we decided we liked it. You know, there, they, had a, they had an orchestra and a choir, and, and I mean, we just thought, wow. You know, it wowed us, you know. So we go back the next Sunday. After all, in my back of my mind, I'm saving $210 on top of, you know, this is pretty neat. So we decided to go back. The preacher kept talking about coming back on Sunday night. So that second week, we go back on Sunday night. After the service, my wife, it was freezing cold in there, and she said, I'm going out to the car. It's, I'm, I'm too cold. And on the back wall, I saw an umpire from the ballpark and my next-door neighbor. So I said, well, I'm going to go talk to those guys for a minute. So I go over there, and I talk to those guys, and up approaches this man, and I'm looking at him, and it's David Simmons. And I said, David. And he looked at me. Do I know you? I'd changed a lot more than he had. He's built just like you. He hadn't changed from on the wrestling team in the, in the ninth grade. He was 133 pounds, and he was still 133 pounds. And, he, and I said, yeah, Timmy Brown. And he's like, Timmy Brown, my goodness, are you still married to Kit? And I said, yeah, she's out in the car. And he's like, you're kidding. Well, what are you doing here? And I was like, well, I don't know. We're just saving $210 for counseling, you know. And, and, he's, and he's very, very, he said, well, let me go see Kit. I mean, this guy, Richard, he and I used to ride around in, when we were 15 and 16 years old in his brother's Volkswagen van smoking dope and getting drunk. And I hadn't seen him in all these years, 20-something years, and there he is in church. And so he comes out to the car, and, and, you know, he sees Kit. She knew him in high school as well, you know, and, and we all kind of reunite. And he was very inquisitive as to where we lived. And the next day was uh, uh, Labor Day. 
Well, guess what? Ten o'clock in the morning, boom, 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 somebody's at the door. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was him. And uh, it was kind of that front porch visit for a while, you know, and he kept asking me all these questions, you know, like, you know, if you were to die right now, do you know where you'd be? And well, I was like, well, probably purgatory. I'm still hung <laughs> up there, you know. And uh, he said, well, you know, he just very gently talked to me about God, myself, and hell. And, and led me to the understanding of, you know what, I'm on the wrong track. And the Spirit of God just came in, you know, and my wife and I both at that moment, you know, received Christ as our Savior. Now, I can honestly say that um, what that man did for us is what I think the church today needs more of, is he committed to personally disciple us. For the next four months, he came to our house every Tuesday night for four hours. And, you know, one of the surest signs that I was, I, Richard, my conversion was as drastic as those lights going on and off. That's how drastic it was. The first week he came back, he said, he started talking to me. I said, wait, let me tell you something. I said, the weirdest things happened to me this week. And he said, what's that? And I said, I used the, name, the Lord's name in vain six times this week. How in the world would I know I used the Lord's name six times? I used to use it six times in 60 seconds. And, and I said, you know what? It's like somebody took a sword and just drove it into my gut and twisted it every time I used it. And he said, well, I think you got the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I, think you're, I think you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're filled with the Spirit. And, you know, and then he walked us through personal one-on-one -on -one discipleship for four months. And, uh, and that guy, he's with the Lord today. And you know, I can just see the, the providence of God from those early days of high school of riding around in a van with him smoking dope to him leading us to Christ. You know, my wife and I both, you yeah, know, and yeah. uh, I mean, I think it's a rare thing for a husband and a wife to be converted together, but uh, we were. So. That, that is amazing grace, yeah. isn't it? It's yeah. just a, it's a, how wonderful is the Lord's grace that you had by discipline, you know, overcome some of the drink mm -hmm. and the drugs. But now you're changed inside, and mm -hmm. you have a relationship with the Lord. Can mm -hmm. you can you explain something to the viewer and those, you know, anyone listening, uh, what it is that you would like to say to somebody who's back where you were in mm -hmm. Catholicism, and who's believing that it is the church sacraments that make your life right. And, sure. You know, it's all of these things that you do. Can you explain? Just what it is to, to trust on the Lord. Sure. And, and I'd like to really do that just with a, a portion of Scripture that has become one of my favorites. And I'll just read a couple of verses and, and talk about it. And this is in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 1. And it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And as I began to understand that scripture, what I, what I would say to, to you who are listening is that I realized that through my entire life I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And that means spiritually dead. Obviously I'm still sitting here being recorded right now, so I'm still physically alive. But I was spiritually dead. And dead people spiritually cannot react to spiritual stimuli any more than a physical dead person 
can react to physical stimuli. So I was spiritually dead, and I came across two words a couple verses later that say these are my two favorite words in all of the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says, but God. So here I am, spiritually dead, walking according to the course of this world, you know, just the principles of the world, the drunk, drug addict world that I was part of. I was walking according to that, and it even says that, it, that, that that's being controlled by the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. He's controlling everything in this world. And I was dead in my trespasses and sins, spiritually dead, walking the way that he wanted me to walk, but God. And then it goes on to say, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. So it's, the, it's God, the Spirit of God, quickened my soul and caused me to be born again. And you know, the, uh, the other passage that I mentioned earlier in John chapter 3, that the preacher was preaching the day that God opened my heart to, the, to his truth was that um, the, the, the proper words there are born from above. So somebody comes to, to faith in Jesus Christ as God awakens them from the dead spiritually and places life into them. And, and the writer of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, goes on to say in verse 8 of that same chapter, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. This eternal life, this new birth, the old drunk Tim is gone. And that can happen to you as well, viewer, that that person, that drug addict, alcoholic person is can be gone, erased, and God can raise up a new creation. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5:17, "Therefore if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, new things have come, the old things have passed away. The old drunk drug addict Tim Brown no longer exists, and that can be true for your life as well." That that is amazing and it's it's uh, amazing for me too that you use Ephesians two one because that was the that was the verse that did me in when I was a Catholic priest. Now I wasn't into all your stuff. I was into all of this suffering for my sins and being so good and, you know, giving people absolution and confession and giving them the sacraments and you know, being so proud of what a good priest I was, and I wasn't drunk like some of the other priests, and I was, I was doing all of this, and then I started to really read the scriptures after a serious accident that I had, and for many years I was searching the scriptures, but I said, well, I must be some good now because I, you know, I've been such a good priest, and now I've been searching the scripture. This is what Bible believers do, you know, mm -hmm. and then I realized I read that and I said. This, nothing good to be. <laughs> and then I remember what Christ said in John's Gospel, the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and live. So I, I just really got on the carpet of my house and I cried out to God to, to give me the faith and by that faith the grace to trust on Christ alone. And it was the same for me. I was a new creation and it was mm -hmm. only two months more I could remain in Catholicism. And I, I left uh, the priesthood and, and the West Indies and came to Canada and then the United States in, 
that came in January 1986. So it was, uh, it's amazing how mm -hmm. the Lord uses the, the same scripture, and it was in, in 86 too that I came to Atlanta for mm -hmm. the first time. You know, it was, uh, it was back then. Well, Tim, this has been really good talking to you, and uh, I know that uh, you have really uh, impacted my life. Now we're hearing your story and how God works and the power of God's grace. But can you say a final word to the listener and the viewer, what it is you want most of all to say to them? I think what I would like to say most of all is that the, you know, those years of when I stopped using these substances to make me feel a different way, how miserable my life was without them. And it wasn't until... God came into my life. It wasn't until God saved me from his wrath, from my sins. He paid, Jesus Christ paid the penalty of my sins. He died in my place. When I understood that for the first time in my life and I placed faith in him as Savior, then I knew that that, that was true freedom. True freedom was not in just stopping and using a substance. If you like our YouTube channel, please subscribe by clicking on the subscribe button and then by also clicking the bell above to get an automatic update whenever we produce another YouTube video for our See Answers TV channel. Please share our videos with your friends and relatives. May God bless you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. See related videos by tapping or clicking screens.